Okay. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Strong Docs Podcast. I am your host, Seth Myers, and tonight I'm joined with uh, Dr. Dino Pappas, who is a chiropractor and athletic trainer and an avid endurance athlete and a very big advocate for movement, and especially movement as medicine. And so, uh, Dino, just go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself. Hey, thanks for the, uh, the intro. I'm happy to, uh, to be on the, uh, the podcast. Uh, I've been following you a little bit on uh, Facebook and some of the Instagram stuff that you do. And man, let me say some of those lifts that you do are impressive, man. Impressive. So I see you got a goal of 600, man. I hope you get there soon. It'd be fun to see that video. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Pappas and uh, I am a chiropractor here in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, sports medicine, athletic performance, strength training, conditioning is kind of my niche and kind of my passion. Um, something that I've uh, always wanted to do in my, my entire life and little by little by little uh, I've grown and learned and failed and succeeded and uh, I look forward to helping uh, athletes in particular but the average folk just achieve their goals so pretty modest with that and uh, happy to, to help your you know help your listeners out any way I can. Yeah so um, <clears throat> Dina's really big on on uh, well I see a bunch of his posts on Facebook and one, they're super educational, but two, I think they're very, very practical, um, gives a lot of great advice. Um, and so obviously I wanted to have him on the, the podcast to chat about a few things, but um, when we started talking or when he, uh, you know, told me a little bit about some of the things he had done in the past, he had written up an article for the Illinois Cairo uh, Society. And so <clears throat> I read through it and it was spot on in terms of, you know, things that I thought would be relevant. Um, and so the what was the title of that? The drug you should be prescribing? What was it? Yeah, I think the title was the, uh, the drug that uh, everyone should be prescribing and everyone yeah. being medical professionals. And so um, I started reading through it. And um, obviously, the first part is kind of a really big uh, teaser, big, nice, great intro. Uh, but tell us a little bit more uh, about what that article really specifically said, and then maybe some great takeaways uh, from that article. So go ahead, Dean. Yeah, so um, the article was written for, um, uh, for, for, for the State Chiropractic Society, but let's expand upon that. We don't want to limit the audience to just chiropractors because the, uh, the audience that, um, for the podcast, uh, they would benefit from that too. Um, we have, as a society and as health professionals, kind of failed the general public in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that we consistently, everybody, every healthcare practitioner fails is in the recognition and the prescription of exercise. Um, come to think of it, exercise is a drug. There is a therapeutic dosage. There is a therapeutic benefit. There is a point of which exercise can cause harm. So it's actually a drug. It has very strong physiological effects on the brain and on the body in general. And uh, healthcare pr professionals, including chiropractors, I'm throwing us under the bus, that, Seth, just, just, just to say, <laughs> yeah. physical therapists, medical doctors, osteopaths, we have all done a very, very poor job of promoting this drug to the public. The drug is simple. It is easy. It is effective. It is cheap. It is something that can be easily replicated, but consistently you walk into a chiropractor's office or a physical therapist's office or a medical doctor's office and you don't get a therapeutic recommendation for exercises. You may get exercises for your musculoskeletal condition, your shoulder pain, your hip pain, your knee pain, but what about that? What about when, when the knee pain is gone? 
what do you do? You know, what's the dosage for an average person to maintain their health benefits? Um, in the article, I have 30, 30, count them, 30 health yeah. benefits from exercise. I'm and that's sure just the, the iceberg, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there's more. But anything from cholesterol levels to heart rate to blood pressure to pulse to it's the best medication for anxiety. It's the best medication for depression. Uh, it, it improves the quality of your life. Um, it reduces your heart rate. Uh, so many other benefits besides the musculoskeletal that many of us just don't get into. Yeah. And um, so one of the big things that I wanted to – uh, really get out of this is I so from what I do or maybe even what you do um, we attack maybe fitness or maybe as a whole as, as something that we can do to try and get better at maybe competition or better at um, competing or better at uh, maybe just physically just trying to grow muscle size when in reality so that's kind of the extreme of exercise. That's kind of what I'm getting at. When in reality, um, maybe what we should be looking at uh, in terms of day-to-day -day, uh, utility of you know this drug exercise, it doesn't have to look like that. And so I think in society, they think what exercise looks like is what I just mentioned, right? That extreme of kind of pushing until you feel like you're going to throw up, right? Every single day. Uh, but the, the reality of it is, you know, you don't really have to do a huge volume to get the benefits that you just listed. And you don't have to do a huge volume day in and day out, right? I mean, do you want to expand on that or? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Or? Yeah, so you and I are training, you're training for strength and participation um, in some of the, the power lifts and the Olympic lifts. Conversely, I'm training for more of the endurance uh, dynamic and demographic. We are the extremes of the population. Um, and I'm, my, I'm not athletically gifted or anything like that, but you know, the subset of people that do marathons is very small. The subset of people that train for uh, strength training and your capacity for maximal lifting is very small. The reality is right in the middle is where most patients, most people are. And, and getting to that, you know, we kind of, you know, people see that extreme. The marathon is, oh, no, no, that's not me. And they see the extreme. The power lifters, oh, no, that's not me. Mm -hmm. We need to come up with solutions for that middle two-thirds because that middle two-thirds of the population, um, obesity is an epidemic. Diabetes is an epidemic. Um, heart, uh, uh, cholesterol, um, high blood pressure. Um, they call it metabolic syndrome. That's an epidemic. And the dosage for most of those people is about 30 minutes of physical activity. Physical activity can be anything like walking your dog for 30 minutes, going up and down stairs for 30 minutes, going to a pool and doing some light walking up and down a pool or swimming, basically elevating your heart rate to a moderate amount above its resting levels. Um, heart rate max is, is kind of one of the things that they utilize for that. It's not the only way or metabolic equivalence is kind of what they use to measure, uh, measure that. And that's the exercise physiology world. So that's even still too complicated, but getting your heart rate elevated for 30 minutes, about 150 minutes a week. So five days, 30 minutes uh, a day of something simple. Uh, your dog will thank you. My dog does. <laughs> she gets walked. She gets the little happy trot. So just find something simple that you enjoy doing for 30 minutes, five days a week, and do it. Find some good peers, too, some good friends, so you can tell your bad jokes, you can tell your bad stories. <laughs> there you it's go. Comfort. Yeah. <clears throat> Perfect. Um, and that kind of leads right into the next thing I was going to mention. So when I was reading it, before you even got to the section, the article, and I think I mentioned, but I might link this article 
uh, somehow, some way in the show notes so everyone can read it because I think it's really great. But, you know, we started mentioning exercise as being such a great drug and we should, we're under prescribing it currently. And so you mentioned the point of vitals. So uh, as patients might know or clinicians, so when someone comes in as a new patient, especially if you're getting maybe an annual checkup, one of the things you're going to do is vitals. So your blood pressure, your heart rate, uh, height and weight, uh, things of that nature. And within that group, in my head, I was thinking, you know, maybe one of our questions should be, you know, what does your exercise regimen look like? And then you, like the next paragraph, as I kept reading, said specifically, like, exercise as a vital sign. And so, I mean, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit more, I guess, on your, your thoughts on that or maybe how we're, you know, dropping the ball continuously with, with that being a point. Yeah, so we've known for an extended period of time about the obesity epidemic here in the United States. Um, we've known for a long period of time about the importance of taking vital signs on, uh, on, on uh, visits to going to medical practitioners or other healthcare providers. But we know the importance or kind of think we understand the importance of exercise. But one thing that would push that more to the forefront is the declaration that this is a vital sign. Um, that's not my words. This is coming from authorities on health far superior to me, like the World Health Organization uh, and several governmental, United States governmental agencies that have mentioned this in past. And my thought is with the obesity epidemic and the way our healthcare system is, why haven't we just put it in at this point in time? Why haven't we just made it a vital sign? And the answer is because medical training is often behind clinical practice. Um, so the people that are getting trained in the medical industry and in the chiropractic industry, I'm throwing us underneath the bus to physical therapy in general, our training is based on data and statistics and metrics that may be a little bit old. So we all know the obesity epidemic is here. We all know it's a major concern. We all know that exercise is critical. Push that to the forefront and let's add it in as part of our training. Let's make it a vital sign because it should be taken on every, every, every visit and the reality why is because if we don't do something to stem the tide of this epidemic, it will bankrupt America's healthcare system. Yeah. It's sobering data. Like you and I will pay for the sins, the extreme a couple amount will pay for the sins of a large amount of the population. So really a doctor prompting the authority figure, prompting the question, how much exercise do you get this week? Oh, nothing. I just did like 20 minutes. Well, what do you mean 20 minutes? I walked from my car to like the, uh, to like the public transportation, Yeah. walked to work, did that 10 minutes a day, you know, okay, that's not enough. And having a doctor address that in that fashion, in the healthcare visit, that authority figure would really promote that to a different degree. Yeah. And I think you already kind of touched on it, but just the fact that um, when you have a population that's got uh, the things you listed, uh, metabolic syndrome, uh, obesity, uh, those lead to, you know, a laundry list of comorbidities, right? And then that makes the things specifically what we do a little bit more challenging. I can think of a handful of patients already where if they were being seen by a pretty good uh, personal trainer, even, you know, this would make co-managing their pain, uh, musculoskeletal pain, so much easier. And not to mention good research on just exercise and reducing pain being kind of an analgesic. Um, so, I mean, I'm right there with you. So I think some of our people that are going to be listening are going to be a little bit more novice. And so with exercise being a vital um, things that we need to consider or things that maybe you would say like a great place for people to start. So, you know, it being super, super important, 
um, like where do people start? Like where can they look? Where uh, should they go? Should they start with resistance training? Should they start with just looking at the diet? Uh, what do you think, do you know? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I'm a keep it simple guy. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my question would then be to the person is what do you enjoy doing? Mm -hmm. let's start let's start like at the baseline and let's promote that activity if you enjoy walking with with your friends or walking your dog just start with that you know because the, the epidemic is so great if we put all these boundaries on people and all these you know artificial uh, obstacles in front of them will fail time in and time again so start with the activity that you most enjoy number one Find a group of people that enjoy that activity, activity as much as possible and engage in that activity as often as you can, right? Like those three things are where to start with. And if you don't have that and are still are, you know, like where do I start? Where do I go? Find a really good personal trainer, somebody that has, like you, like a really good certification, a certified strength coach or a good personal trainer. Um, do your homework. Ask people in your neighborhood. Look at your, your, their Yelp reviews and Google reviews. Um, maybe tr ask to do one or two personal training sessions. Do you have good chemistry? And use them as a guide because that investment up front in your health saves the thousands of dollars that you'll pay later on mm -hmm. because you're obese, because you have diabetes, because you have all these conditions. Those are the costs later on in your life where you don't want to have. Those break, break the bank, not the $100 a month for the personal trainer or, or whatever. So two things. One, enjoy whatever activities you enjoy. Start there, all right? Uh, find good people and, and do it as often as you can, all right? That's the simplest way. And if you don't know where to start, have a previous injury or, or nervous, um, a, a good uh, sports chiropractor like yourself or, or, or myself, if there is pain, if there's no pain and there's really no major obstacles, then a really good strength coach or personal trainer is, is, a, is a godsend in this area. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say a few points to that. So I honestly don't remember the authority that I heard it from. But um, if you look at the research in terms of diet, um, the best diet for, uh, for any person is something that is sustainable. And that is obviously a super broad term, but that could mean keto diet for one person or a if it fits your macros style diet for another person. Um, and so what they found, you know, is if that person can, you know, keep track of their macros for the day really, really well, and that's something that's easier for them to do, that's the diet that's going to, and it, it works obviously across multiple boundaries, right? The uh, ability for someone to stay with the things that they're doing is obviously going to be substantially higher if they're doing something they enjoy. And then the other thing I was going to mention is, I mean, I would say, don't be afraid. So looking for a coach, like don't be afraid to ask if you've got like a medical doctor or like a family physician or a chiropractor you're going to, don't be afraid to ask them if they know somebody. Right. So, I mean, I don't really pitch that to my patients a lot that, Hey, by the way, you know, I, I, uh, train people, uh, and I think that you'd be a great fit. You know, I think that's kind of maybe uh, put myself that's out there. The doctor, yeah, that's using the doctor-patient relationship to leverage it. In a, exactly. In a and that's not good, right? So That's great so, area. But, um, yeah, and I don't do that. So, uh, but I, I think that that's a great place to start, right? If And then the other thing, too, is maybe if the doctor, whether it's a family medicine uh, physician or even a, a chiro or a PT, if they get that question enough times, which I think is an awesome question, maybe they might start to reevaluate like uh, the, their circle or their uh, 
referral network and including someone like really good personal trainer in that. And that's, just, I, I guess, just my opinion. Um, you're, you're, you're spot on in that um, because in that article that you reference, the uh, physicians that had exposure that were physically active, that uh, engaged in an exercise, engaged in physical activity were more likely, regardless if it was a chiropractor, regardless if it was a medical doctor, to recommend physical activity. And whether that was, all right, these are the exercises I want you to do three days a week, 30, 40 minutes a day, or we're going to send you to a personal trainer or send you to a strength coach. Moral of the story is you're spot on with that. So the doctor leading the charge was critical to getting the message across to the patient. So uh, walk the walk and talk the talk. And uh, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the best at, you know, walking it or talking it, but you know, it goes to show you that there's, there's a little bit of truth to the practice, what you preach in terms of prescription habits there. So. Exactly. Um, so, so we've got maybe how we're going to start or how we're going to uh, start looking at things that we enjoy doing and adding them into our daily routine. And so, you know, maybe let's say someone's been doing a routine for quite a while. They started to enjoy working out just generally speaking. Um, so maybe let's dive into a little bit more specifics here and break down just in terms of your knowledge. I mean, I've got a bias obviously, and I'm sure you do as well. Um, maybe the types of exercise because exercise is a very broad statement, right? Like you mentioned, it could be walking your dogs or it could be deadlifting hundreds of pounds. Like that's polar opposites, right? So um, just in terms of like your knowledge uh, on the subject, what do you think would be, and, and I, let me backtrack and say in terms of longevity, right? So let's say I want to get on a routine or a regimen that I can do for uh, sustainably for a long period of time, minimize injury, but in, increase my chance of living a longer, healthier life. Okay, so you've brought out some really good points, and uh, what we're finding from um, the research in this area, and I'll, I'll give the the you know the thirty five thousand foot overview, and then I'll break it yeah, down a little sure. bit more specific, is a, a hybrid. So um, doing the same thing over and over and over again is not good for the body. So the body craves and likes variability. Sitting too long, no good. Standing too long, no good. Running too much or too long, no good for you. Um, excessive lifting, um, like uh, you know those power lifters that you see that are now 50, 60 years old, they've been crushing it for 20 or 30 years, not good. The body inherently likes variability. That's the 35,000 foot, foot, foot view. So every couple months or every couple years, change up, challenge your body in a little bit of a different way, see how it will, will respond. The breaking it down to a microcosm, um, what seems to be the best um, fit for most people if they can make it is that high intensity interval training, the, the HIT. Um, and, and really it's a combination of muscular strength, muscular endurance, cardiovascular endurance built into a short amount of time. So there's 20 to 30 minute blocks, you're going to get a strength workout. You're going to get an endurance workout. You're going to get a muscular endurance workout. You're going to get a heart workout for your heart. Um, and, and it seems to be the best fit because it offers a little bit of variability. So my bias is if we can get a person to that point, a couple months, a couple years down the road, they're walking, all of a sudden they're losing weight. Good. I need a new challenge. I kind of steer them into some of the high intensity interval programs just because it, it promotes the best in the shortest amount of time blend of overall health characteristics. The only thing you have to be careful with high intensity interval training is that you are paired and matched with the right coaching staff because some of the maneuvers they may ask you to do may not be the mm -hmm. best for your type or my type or whoever's body yeah. type 
performing it. So yeah, I'll make a quick statement on that, but you just brought up a, a bunch of really good points I want to talk about. So I'm a big advocate for all type of movements, and I don't necessarily think that there's a bad exercise, right? But I do think that there is a time and a place for specific exercise. So someone like myself who wants to compete in the snatch and the clean and jerk, I'm probably going to have to do overhead squats from time to time, right? Um, but someone, let's just say, well, let's take you for example. Like you want to qualify for Boston. Uh, overhead squats, uh, that might not be as like important in the goals that you've got, right? So there's, so if I, like what you just said, if I'm a trainer and I'm forcing people to do this particular lift because I think it is really good for them, whatever that lift may be, I think we've got to reassess that, right? So that means making plans slightly individualized and slightly customized to each person. And then you've also got like the anatomy argument, whether it's uh, anatomical limitations slash uh, like, I guess, non-anatomical or uh, replacements, right? So yeah. uh, things of that nature. Um, I just wanted to bring that up real quick. So again, like not necessarily a terrible exercise, but there's definitely time and place for, and that's my opinion for specific exercise that you're going to have in any routine really. And I'm, I'm spot on board. Um, exercise, uh, you know, has to be the best scenario is it's individualized to, to the person and time and place. Um, you know, I know, you know, you and I are both chiropractors and we've seen the, the literature and the stuff on the sit up, the curl up, the crunch. Sure. And, yep. and you know what, there is a time and a place where a patient may need to train that. Yeah, if, they've got a, if they've got a PT test, right? Exactly. Army PT test, right? Like, you know, and uh, I just did a, a presentation to CrossFit on a military base. And that was the question that came up. My back is killing me. What about these sit-ups? And I was like, we don't have to do them often, but occasionally, yeah. we, occasionally we have to do them. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, moral of the story is that, uh, you know, again, right time, right place, right patient. So right person. So I, I completely agree with that statement. Yep. Yeah, it's funny you bring up HIT. Um, I'm actually in the middle of writing up, it's almost done, a HIT manual for, it's like going to be like one of the little templates that we're going to have. And so it's got all sorts of goodies in there. Um, but that'll be done here shortly. But I was going through a bunch of different uh, research this morning, um, a bunch of different systematic reviews uh, about all sorts of different stuff. And so basically what I came down to, and we're talking about longevity here. So uh, let's say you want to lose weight. So we're comparing endurance or aerobic exercise to resistance training. So what we found is, so there's two main things with weight loss. So there's just general weight loss, like getting uh, fewer pounds on the scale. And then there's looking at the specifics of the weight that we're losing. So there's something called the visceral uh, adipose. And so when you look at the research uh, now, what they'll tell you is visceral adipose, which is essentially uh, more uh, fat around the midsection is a higher, so the more of that you've got, the higher risk of, uh, I guess, mortality you've got uh, going down the road. So if we can decrease that visceral adipose, that's gonna have better health outcomes for us. Obviously weight loss, very, very great too, but when it comes down to uh, looking at the two things, the visceral adipose looked uh, a little bit better, right? So then that begs the question, okay, well, how do I get rid of those things? So in the research, what they found was uh, just aerobic training is really, really great at decreasing body weight, but it actually wasn't very great at decreasing that visceral adipose that we've got. And then the opposite was true for more resistance training uh, styles, right? So 
what they found was people really wouldn't lose a whole lot of weight overall when they would do the resistance training programs. And so it was kind of discouraging, right? And that we probably see that very, very often. Like someone starts a training program and maybe they stick with it for a pretty good you know, amount of time, a couple of months, and they don't really see changes on the scale. Uh, but what they found was even though the people weren't losing weight, they were actually losing that visceral adipose tissue. So even though, again, that weight loss as a number wasn't coming down, overall their health markers were getting really, really good because that visceral adipose tissue was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so then you mentioned HIT, like if you look at the evidence, right? So HIT is essentially a <clears throat> mashup of those two things in a short window of time. Um, and so you can cut down on time that we spend doing or just being in the gym, right? Everyone wished they could probably be at the gym a little bit less and get similar gains. Um, but we're getting aerobic uh, benefits and we're getting resistance training benefits. And we can, like, I was writing up this manual, right? And it, it you can do anything and everything you want to do with a workout. You could do, I'm going to do so many seconds on, so many seconds off. The list of numbers of exercises that you could do is endless. Um, but, you know, I think it's really, because I haven't mentioned this to you at all, but the fact that you bring that up and the fact that I'm in the middle of writing this little manual thing, it just, I mean, you can see how the evidence just leads to, uh, obviously, people coming up with similar answers and similar uh, scenarios for uh, these problems that we're facing, right? Yeah, so you're referring to body composition. Yeah. percent body fat and lean mass. And the only way, the, the major way, I don't say the only way, but the major way you can change body composition, including that fat mass and fat-free mass around the abdomen, uh, is by resistance training. Um, yeah, so well, and, and, and then I didn't mention this earlier, so there's a caveat to this, is they, they're comparing a lot of this to hypocaloric diets. So I wish it was true, um, but when you look through the evidence, unfortunately, I mean, there's the extremes, right? But for the vast majority of people, you can't out-exercise a terrible diet. So yeah, when you're looking at body weight, body composition, um, that hypocaloric diet wins out over just exercise. So yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, so I'm on board with that. Um, but I, kind of what, I, what I'm seeing with the, the listener probably that's listening to this podcast, the, the nitpicky point is really you want something that can get your attention, um, that you're passionate about, number two. Um, the third thing that you kind of want with this is something that will incorporate all these different types of uh, uh, modalities out there, something for strength. Uh, something for strength endurance slash mm -hmm. endurance and something for cardiorespiratory endurance in a short amount of time. And those high intensity interval programs seem to be the best fit across the board. It's not the only fit, but it seems sure. to be the best fit. But that leads back to the previous point, you know, even before we get here, you know, is what does a, what does a person like to do? Uh, what does a person want to do? And can they find a good peer group to do it with and then do it as often as possible? So that's step one. Step two is if you make it to that point, you want to challenge yourself six months, a year into that, those high intensity purposes seem to be the sweet spot. Um, and then people are going to ask, well, what are high intensity programs? Things like Orange Theory, um, uh, certain types of boot camps. If you work with a good strength coach or personal trainer, they'll have small group training of four or five people. And you'll fluctuate between about five exercises with some work either on a rowing machine or on a bike or on mm -hmm. a treadmill with short burst running. 
those are high intensity programs where they pick four, five, six exercises and you cycle through them over 20 to 30 minutes of time. Pretty much like circuit training. Uh, you know, that's, that's for the, for the average listener, that's what a high intensity program is. So um, another thing I wanted to bring up, so kind of shifting gears here, you've got a couple of uh, people, it looks like you're coaching and I've seen um, some posts on, on Facebook. And so walk us through maybe, and I guess thinking, I'm thinking about kind of on the client's end, or yeah. especially like in your case, it looked like client's parents end. Yeah. Um, just kind of things that maybe we should be asking. So like, let's say we get to, we get matched up with, that trainer that's in front of us, right? Maybe what are some of the questions that we might have for them or we should be asking? Maybe what are, it look like some of your responses as the coach trainer um, that the client maybe wants to hear or should be listening for? So what do you think about that? Yeah, so good question. Um, you're gonna get a lot, of, uh, a lot of information and a lot of different philosophies. One thing about personal trainers and strength coach, coaches, they have a bias. And their bias is heavily based on who they trained under, um, what their, their previous training was, what articles they're reading, and just their kind of overall philosophy. And uh, as a parent going into it, I know that there's certain buzzwords that you want to hear, but as a parent going into it, what you really want to know is a couple things. Do you, do you, you know, can I trust my kid with you? Um, number one, like, you know, this is kind of like sending your kid to a basketball coach. They're an extension of you, you know, where they're going to be spending critical period of their life learning and tutoring under you. And this may be one hour in the gym, three days a week for six months. It's an investment. So they want to mm -hmm. get to know, like, and trust you. Second thing is, is most parents don't care about the philosophy as much, um, as much as they want to know that. Um, the, the key thing is keeping your kid healthy on the playing field, especially if they're investing in, in their kid. Uh, in my case that you're referring to, I had a parent that's spending thousands of dollars of travel basketball. And the last thing he wants is his kids injured in the gym. Why? Because now he has to spend thousands of dollars to fix his kid um, in, uh, you know, sports medicine, chiropractic, sports, physical therapy, and then pay the travel expenses for the travel basketball. It's, it, it would be ridiculous. So injury prevention, if you're a parent, somebody that you can know, like, and trust, that's an extension of your morals and your ethics that you're teaching your kid. Second is injury prevention. And the third thing, don't have the trainer or the coach impose their philosophy on you. Um, don't, don't have them do that. And, and what I mean by that is have the trainer match the training to the end game. And that's the thought process. Begin with the end in mind. Like sit down. And from the personal trainer standpoint, sit down with the coach, sit down with the parents, sit down with the athlete. Okay, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What, if you close your eyes and you're dreaming, what do you dream of by, by playing you travel basketball? For these parents, I want my kids to get a scholarship because I don't want to pay for college. Great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What level? What no level? Kidding. Division two, division three, division one. One kid said division one. Another kid said I'll play anywhere that gives me a scholarship. Great. I can, I can program that now. And then how do you play? What's your style of basketball? Like are you up-tempo or are you a physical team? Because I'm going to train them differently in the gym, right? Like it's just mm -hmm. – makes sense okay what are your weaknesses one one kid can shoot and he can pass the other the other son can handle the ball but he's not very physical so i'm going to try i'm going to create programs based on what their strengths and what their limitations are i'm not going to force my philosophy i'm going to let their style of play their strength and the limitations how how dad sees this relationship 
uh, and then with their coach's input, and then I'm going to test them. I'm going to go ahead, and that was tonight, actually. I ran through a, a combination of tests to figure out, to get some analytics so we can compare eight to ten weeks down the road. So the parent perspective, an extension of new, no like, and trust, um, and then uh, injury prevention, and then don't let the trainer dictate this, this, you know, their philosophy onto your children. Uh, I don't think that that's the right way of doing it. From the, the trainer's perspective, developing rapport with the parent, uh, and then a comprehensive interview, uh, testing, and then, you know, again, put, implementing the, the program uh, rightfully so to accomplish the end goal. What yeah. Is it? It's something uh, that I saw that you post, and this was a little bit uh, maybe a week or so ago, is within that interviewing, uh, you mentioned something about winning, right? Like that's part of your philosophy, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it because I compete in just about anything. If you ask some of my buddies, like you're not going to get away with like doing something if you're not going to try and like compete and be the best at it. Like my buddies um, that we do the strong ducks with, we'll, like we'll play you know spike ball, the game spike ball. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to let them win, <laughs> and they're definitely not going to win the last game that we play anything, right? And so I think a little bit of that, a little bit of that uh, edge has maybe been lost because I've got a bunch of younger sisters and and I see them going through like youth sports. And uh, I mean, they've been out there to have a good time and they're out there to win, but there's not like that, like, no, we're definitely out here just to win mentality. And I mean, I know you can get extreme with that, obviously, like I've seen that. Um, But I think there's, I would love it if someone said like, we're here to win and that's what we're going to do. And obviously there's a a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. So like, let's talk about maybe the right way to set that uh, scene. Yeah. So I think uh, without getting too political, I think our society is kind of, um, you know, everybody gets a participation trophy Yeah, and that's great and that's fine. But you know, our society from top to bottom is still not built on everybody should be equal. Uh, it's just not. So getting that into our youth that you, if you want to achieve something, it's going to take hard work. It's going to take a commitment to excellence. It's okay to win. Uh, it's not okay to rub it in somebody's face. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's you win or you learn, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the way I see it. You win or you learn. If you lose, you're learning. You're learning what it takes to win eventually. Yeah. And, and I think okay. that's, I mean, me being uh, – a little bit younger than you. I think that's something that you start to realize as you do get older, even with that competitive edge, right? Like maybe you didn't win X, Y, and Z, but instead of like being down on yourself for the next month, like as you age, you're like, well, but you know, now I've got this thing going for me. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think you're right, man. Like you get, you get to a certain point in time and you realize the only person you're competing against is you in your life. Yeah. You, know, you, you were probably competing in football against the team and your goal is to beat the team. You get to a certain point in your life, you look yourself in your mirror and you say, that's the hardest opponent I'll ever face is the person staring back at me. So yeah, yeah, yeah. there was a point in time where that hit, hit home to me. And I'm like, man, I'm like, I'm doing this for me now, you know? So, and you know, for my family so I can be healthy and, and all that. So But as far as the training program to win, um, you want to enable success. So many times we force our methods, strength strength coaches force their methods on their athletes, and it handcuffs them. Or you ever watch coaches, especially I like watching the NCAA tournament, and, um, you know, there's certain coaches out there that 
every possession you're yelling and screaming at their kids and they kids play tight. You know what I mean? Like the best thing they can do is just sit down and grab a seat. So that's why like when we talk about winning, it's like, let's, let's be confident in our approach. Let's have a thorough approach and let's just have the kid execute that, you know, like keep it simple, you know, and let's have the yeah. kid execute that approach to win over and over and over again. <clears throat> as much as a strength coach is sometimes the best thing that we can do is take a step back. You're like yeah. paralysis by analysis. You talked about it off air here a little bit, you know, paralysis by analysis. Like I'm just going to give the kids that I, I uh, evaluated, assess some simple strength training conditioning moves and just, you know, I, I basically take the gloves off here. Here you go. Just do a couple simple things a couple days a week because, you know, um, that's what you need. Like you don't yeah. need me standing over you and going over deadlift form, squat form every single time. You need yeah. to basically get out there and, 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 you know, get after it there. So. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we're getting kind of into the coaching analogy stuff here, but the, in my experience, like I've had that head football coach who's just like every possession, it, it's what can he pick out to yell at. Right. And so as a player or as somebody on the other end of that, it's like, well, like that doesn't really phase you anymore. It's kind of, um, just you get uh, immune to it or uh, conditioned to it, right? And so when you have that coach who is the opposite, right? So they sit back, they let plays happen, they let mistakes happen, they might say something, you know, but when they do raise their voice or when they do make a point, I feel like that's the coach or that's the person that you're way more likely to take. And they don't even have to do it in a yelling voice, right? So like, again, just being conditioned, uh, <laughs> On, on the other side of things where it's like, no matter what happens, if they're, they're just going to yell. Right. And so when you hear somebody who's the opposite of that, just mention one or two things here and there, you can take them very seriously. And you know that they're directing something very specifically towards uh, something that's going to improve you. Right. Um, oh, go ahead. Uh, and, and, you know, you and I being in the strength and conditioning fields, you know, uh, largely for, for the listeners here, you know, that's what they respond to. Uh, overwhelmingly, 80% of people respond, um, you know, to, to positivity or 90% of people, whatever that number is. We all, we all don't like criticism, but if we get pointed criticism for a specific goal and a specific deficit, you and I would both work harder and anybody else would work harder toward the, that end game. So I'm right with you and right on board, man. Criticism is good, but that overt yelling and screaming, we all yeah. shut it down. We all yeah. do. Well, and it's something I just, I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier, but I actually did, I coached tonight uh, weightlifting. And so I'm actually pretty laid back when it comes to coaching the movements, especially when you're talking about the snatch and the clean and jerk. They're very, very technical. And so if I know I'm dealing with a beginner and I can see that their form maybe isn't perfect, but the grand scheme of things, they're moving in a way that's not going to injure themselves. It might look a little sloppy here and there. Like they might look at me and I think we've grown to a society like, and then maybe this is why some people maybe don't want to start at all is because they're afraid they're going to do something wrong. But it's, you know, I, I still applaud that. And I say, Hey, you know, that looks great. I'll let them do that a couple of times. Like let them do something, I guess, bad a little while. And then once they've ingrained maybe a little bit of that pattern and I can tell that they're doing it consistently, now we can make a small change, right? Because they know what it feels like, you know, cause and again, I'm using the snatch and clean jerk, which are super technical lifts. Those are hard to feel things in it. But again, like just allowing people, and this is a broad statement here, allowing someone to start on a program and do it like really, really poorly for a while is okay, right? Like you don't have to come out the gates with something that's 
scientifically proven and backed by all this evidence and you're going to get shredded soon, you know, just start, make it a routine, make it something that is, and this is, again, it could be a very specific uh, uh, statement or I think it's a very great uh, generalization statement. Just, just make something uh, doable and make something actionable and, and get going. So um, I guess the last thing that we might talk about, cause I think we're running uh, I don't know what, I didn't start the, the clock or anything, but we're probably getting close to an hour. Um, and we can talk as long as you want. I don't really care. But the last my, uh, little point that I think we'll talk about is maybe something, because we're both uh, clinicians and we both treat musculoskeletal pain. So maybe let's touch on a few things that you see maybe day in and day out that maybe come from people who are training in a certain fashion or training in a certain way and maybe ways that we can preemptively uh, slow that down or maybe prevent certain things from happening. So uh, do you have a, a little short list of, of things that you, <laughs> yeah, I see. Something comes to mind right yeah. away. I, yeah. I had this conversation in the last two weeks um, with the, you know, the, again, I assessed two youth basketball players. Their dad interviewed me a couple weeks ago and, you know, he's like, you're my guy to write my son's my program and help him execute the program. And, you know, so, you know, um, in the interview process, I asked what their schedule was. I need to know like, birthdays i need to know like your um travel like when you're playing in what tournament if you're going on vacation what are you doing for the fourth of july how long any other trips when does school start and it became painfully apparent that the older kid had like no real breaks between now and august every weekend he was in a youth basketball aau or or yeah and it became apparent he was practicing about three or four days a week three days a week with the coaches at school one day a week, one day a week, he'd be in the gym in the morning and shooting in the afternoon. And I said to himself, I said, you know what the four seasons are? <laughs> you know where I'm going what, with this, right? What do you say? He's like, yeah, yeah, of course. Spring, summer, fall, winter. I was like, great, smart kid, right? Do you know in sports what the four seasons are? Yeah, no clue. No clue yeah. whatsoever. Uh, football, well, for me, so – this is actually a side point, but I think it's interesting how regionally the, the sports can be different. Where I'm from, it's fall is football, winter is basketball, spring is baseball. And then you got summer to do whatever the heck you want, usually actually like traveling sports with baseball. You were a three-sport athlete, right? All the way, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, okay. So your body got variability. How did it get variability? By playing multiple sports. Yeah. Today, this is the generation of two things. One, the couch potato, which we've referenced quite a bit. And two, the one sport athlete, where yeah. everything's invested in one sport. And guess what? The four seasons are the preseason, the in-season, the postseason, and the off-season. Yeah. Right? yeah so, uh, and these, well, kids, these kids have no off-season. Yeah, they so are overtrained for their sport completely. I haven't talked to my parents too much about this, but I've got a really uh, young sister, and she's a real. She's a, so she's probably gonna. And we're pretty good athletes. My family, um, not amazing, but like pretty good, right? And so she's probably gonna be the most athletic. But she plays the most sports out of any of us that have ever played. And just like you mentioned earlier, she's in a tournament. I swear, every weekend in different cities. In different sports. So one weekend, she might have a soccer tournament. One weekend, she might have a, a softball tournament. One weekend, she might have a volleyball tournament. And this will be within a, hand, you know, a handful. Of, and so, you know, she's doing pretty good, but I'm just kind of waiting for the, the time frame. For, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, the nice thing, though, or the good news is she's totally a multi-sport athlete, and she loves it. Um, the bad news is she's totally being, I think, overworked, overtrained. So, uh, so we've got um, one single-sport athlete as being a potential risk factor. Uh, and so, like, what do we do about that? So we have to, with the key word with that is volume. We have to really measure volume. So um, there's the, there's the, uh, the on-court stuff or the skill stuff as part of the sport. Then there's the performance capacity of the sport. And then there's the strength training and conditioning. As a strength training and conditioning specialist for this kid and for the parent, I'm not going to put a lot of volume. I will not program a lot of heavy weights, a lot of strength training and conditioning. I will not program a lot of plyometrics. The kid is doing that. More so, I would like to see a 25% decrease in basketball, but when dad's paid for travel basketball, yeah. that's probably not going to happen. So really, the key word for me for the kid is get him through the summer. Get him recovery and mobility tips. Get him a little bit of uh, core strengthening, and that's it. Finish at that. Um, I Hopefully, when I test his metrics eight to ten weeks from now, I will not see a decline in his metrics because I have a feeling as basketball volume picks up over these next eight weeks, you may see his physical performance in like 75, um, 75 uh, foot dash. That's what they do in basketball. Instead of a 40 yard dash, the basketball court's hundred feet, 75 feet, his vertical jump. Um, I'm hoping I don't see a decrease in his metrics over the course of these next eight to 10 weeks, because as they progressively more and more in basketball, the body's not going to respond. It will need rest. So um, the brother, on the other hand, is playing in four tournaments, and he has one practice a week, and he needs quite a bit of strength training and conditioning. So I'm going to start with body weight and progressively work up into, you know, uh, very simple dumbbell deadlifts, kettlebell uh, goblet squats. Um, I'm going to get him some strength and some athleticism, and I will be doing one day a week of plyometric training with him and sprint training to get his speed up. He can shoot. He can pass. Um, he's tall so he can rebound, but he doesn't have a lot of physical components to his game. So I'm training two brothers completely differently based on their characteristics. One of them is significantly overtrained and one of them is not, doesn't have the physical capacity needed. So that's, that's my, my soapbox here, the four seasons. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, is there anything else that you see very, very frequently in the clinic cl clinic, excuse me, that you feel like could easily be prevented or had they known this tip here or there, you wouldn't be seeing them at all. Um, do you have anything there? Yeah. So the most common injury we see, I don't know about you guys, but it's low back pain. Um, yeah. Uh, especially the flexion intolerant low back pain. Um, absolutely. That's yep. kind of the, that's probably number one. And the nice thing for us is it tends to get better really quickly with a handful of things, right? Yeah, so that's your bread and butter and my bread and butter. Um, we see it in our, uh, our CrossFitters. I see it in my boot campers quite a bit, uh, the people that do uh, you know, the boot camp style workouts in our CrossFitters. We also see it with certain training programs for youth sports that involve crunches, curl-ups, yeah. um, bicycles, V-ups all stuff that's supposed to help the core yeah. really cause an overload to the tissues on the back part of the, the spine. And that yeah, overload so, is completely preventable, completely preventable. So I mentioned a phrase that people might not be familiar with flexion intolerant, low back pain. Um, let's just quickly define that. So flexion intolerant. So flexion is the act of bending forward. So as if you're going to go touch your toes and intolerant, just meaning um, that you don't like it or it's uh, in, in the clinic setting, it means it 
pretty much causes pain um, and to varying degrees. Like I've seen it where it's like super acute, meaning like just recently happened and very, very painful, as well as maybe a chronic like, yeah, like when I've been forward, it kind of gets really achy. Um, and so exactly what, uh, what, what Dino's saying here is you see it very, very frequently where the most aggravating thing is they bend forward to touch your toes. Uh, maybe they, here's a big one, and you probably see this very, very often they're laying on their back you're going through your physical exam and then they go to sit up or you ask them to sit up and they do a giant crunch to get <laughs> and, and, and it's not part of the exam but i will very frequently ask them how did that feel when they get up from that that laying down to seated position and pretty much especially if it's been you know that flexion and tolerant presentation um pretty much every single time it's like yeah like that really really hurt so uh you mentioned a handful of, of things that that injure or make that uh, presentation worse. So what are a handful of other things? Yeah, so the sit-up, uh, number one on the hit list, the crunch would be number two. Um, those were staples of core training programs. Something called a V-up where your, your uh, body's in a V position, your feet are above your legs, and you're trying to touch, yep. you're trying to touch your hands to your toes. The bicycle crunch where you're doing something like this. The Russian twist. Yeah. Or the, uh, the glute ham sit-ups where a person goes oh, yeah. through the device, all the way over the device, all uh -huh. the way back, and then all the way forward. Um, you know, we see it, I see it a lot in our CrossFit population. And I was just like, here's my card, here's my card. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it sounds really bad, but you know, the, the, the point of that is a lot of these injuries, because, um, because of those high risk exercises for the spine, can be limited or avoided and save you literally save you the average viewer thousands of dollars in medical care by just choosing wise solutions for your back. Um, things like uh, a dead bug exercise where uh, patients on their back, they touch their opposite hand and the opposite leg like this and they bring it out. It's a thing called a bird dog where somebody's on their hands and legs and they touch the opposite arm and they bring it out like that. Um, you know, uh, another good exercise are the bridge where somebody's on their back and you lift their hips off the table. Yeah, um, you just described my what my P-Tech looks like every time. Pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and some other exercises that I think are great, um, you know, people know the plank and the side plank, but uh, my, my fun little trivia tip is that a f farmer's carry, which is a strong man's carry, carrying two dumbbells or two kettlebells down to your side, or a suitcase carry carrying one down to your side, or a waiter's carry carrying one thing overhead, which I do quite a bit of, is a walking forward plank, a walking side plank, and a walking overhead carry, which is engaging this whole chain. It's a walking plank. It's a lot more yeah. functional, a lot more fun. So I program that for, you know, when I, when I can uh, for patients and when I can definitely for strength and conditioning, because just because it's, it's a fun exercise and it's very functional. So I toss those, I mean, like I said, you just kind of mentioned all that. And I even have uh, farmer's carries in my P-TECH a bunch. But nice. Um, actually, I'll put those in my own programming, like in between exercises or in my Metcons a bunch. But yep. I try and get patients to understand that, like, the farmer's carry is really, really simple. and it, Or a suitcase carry. I like suitcase carries. Um, and you can do those in between your, your sets. So if you're doing sets of squats, um, you do a set of squats you have a kettlebell or a dumbbell next to your side, you pick it up, you walk down to the end of the gym and then back. And if you're doing suitcase, you can switch halfway. 
and then you catch your breath and then when you're ready to go you do another set and then you do so i mean super super uh awesome exercise that i think is very very underutilized one thing i'll mention about this when it comes to the suitcase carry i see this uh misused uh, a lot um you know i'd say it in the crossfit community but when you do a suitcase carry the objective of that exercise is carrying it in, let's say my right hand. So the left side of my body, essentially the midsection is going to be super, super lit up in terms of muscle activity. Mm -hmm. And the whole point is so that these muscles or the, these muscles will fire so that I don't tilt over from the weight. Mm -hmm. What I see happen very, very frequently is people will grab heavier weight than they need to. They will, so if I've got it in my right hand, you can kind of picture they'll be leaning like the leaning tower of Pisa, right? <laughs> to their left to, to let the weight uh, rest almost on their leg uh, as a support to, so that they can walk. And of course, I'm exaggerating a bit, but when I tell people uh, what to do for a suitcase carry is get heavy load, but not so heavy that uh, you have to lean. So you should be able to hold the load literally you know uh an inch or so away from your body maybe not that far but it shouldn't have to be resting on your leg as you walk if you have to go so heavy that you have to rest it against your leg that's too heavy and so um that's something that i see very very often and you're basically just not doing the exercise correctly if you do that um but yeah so really really great tips anything else you wanted to to mention or points you wanted to to bring up i think we'll go ahead and start wrapping this thing up. Yes. I'm looking forward to that video of you hitting 600 pounds. Oh yeah. I don't know. And I hope that'll be soon. So my programming so far has been all conventional, uh, deadlifting, which means like a normal stance, but I pull better sumo and I haven't done sumo in a really long time. Like I've done some recently, but just for like higher uh, volume, not really for heavy load. So here pretty soon, what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch it. And so maybe within the next couple of months, I'll do like some really heavy, like sumo deadlifting stuff. Um, so I should be getting pretty close. Like, I don't know if I project maybe three months from now, maybe like 585 ish. I have no idea. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully by the end of the year, that's kind of a goal. Looking forward to it, man. Hey, one little quick tidbit and you'll probably concur with this for all the viewers out there. We are not all meant to squat ass to ground. Oh, right? yeah. The yeah. number one thing that governs the squat depth, your depth in the squat and your stance in the uh, deadlift is your anatomy of your hip, which means you can think or are hit on your parents. Uh, <laughs> one or the other, right? Shakira, the hips don't lie. You got it from your parents, right? Yeah. The whole story is that, uh, uh, you know, some people are genetic freaks and they can get that depth. For the average person just training for average daily life and average daily function, getting anywhere close to 90 degrees with a good amount of weight is the solid place to be. Same thing with the deadlift. Getting anywhere close to the floor with that good hinge and good tuck position is where you want to be. So within, I'll mention, within my programming and within the rehab that I give people, so within my programming, I started this whole uh, big uh, cycle that I'm doing, all uh, box squatting. So I have the anatomy to be able to squat uh, pretty low, but I started all box squatting. Um, and so if people don't know what that is. You literally have a box uh, behind you where you go sit down, maybe about to where you would be parallel or basically sitting on a chair, and then you stand back up. So you don't drop any further than that. 
Um, I think that's a very, very, uh, yep. Yeah. So very great place to start and a very like awesome exercise, even for patients with low back pain. Like there's no reason why you can't still load those tissues up, assuming that we one don't have pain during exercise, but two don't have a significant flare up within the next 24 to 48 hours. So I guess I'll mention that. And then the other thing I didn't do this in my own programming just cause I didn't really have an issue with it, but uh, patients with low back pain, I try and still allow them to deadlift from blocks. And so again, I think this is something, and I talk to this uh, with patients a lot, something that we see maybe in the CrossFit community is, or maybe in the powerlifting community, if you're not squatting full depth, if you're not deadlifting from the floor, then you might as well just not do those things. When in reality, like we can easily modify those lifts to be able to let you do them one pain-free or in a pain-free range of motion, right? And, and two, do them very, very safely. Like, especially if we're in the clinic, we can see what their setup would potentially look like and then um, allow them to start training in that range of motion. So yeah, totally agree. And I told, and then as it goes with the same point we made earlier, like not every exercise is terrible. Like there's not necessarily a specific exercise that's terrible. It's specific to the person, right? So I see tons of times where we get that really nasty butt wink, or if you want to call it that, right? Um, like at 90 degrees. So we can do everything we want to do to try and minimize that. Um, but depending on the patient's goals or the person's goals, like we don't necessarily need to go that low. Like box squatting could be absolutely perfect for everything that you want to do in life. Right. So a really, really good point. Um, I'm on so, board, man. Good, 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 uh, good follow up on that one there. So do you know where can people, uh, follow you, learn more about you? Yeah. So, um, I, I don't know if the, the, uh, listeners know, but uh, I work for a company called Arosti, um, rehab centers, uh, my clinics in uh, Austin, Texas, in an area called Northwest Hills. Uh, our main number um, is 1-800-404-6050. Um, I'm on Facebook. It's uh, just Dino Pappas, my first and last name, D-I-N-O-P-A-P-P-A-S. I do have a Twitter account, at Dr. Dino Pappas, that I utilize. Um, I try to post really good, relevant stuff um, that would help a majority of the people out. And um, I really enjoy, uh, you know, helping athletes in particular. And uh, I had fun with this. So thanks for the invite. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, we could probably keep talking for a couple more hours. <laughs> so we'll probably have to do another next, one. Next time over a couple beers, my friend. Exactly. Um, so if you're in the Austin area, uh, or obviously if you want to learn more about him on Facebook, which I highly recommend, uh, please check him out. And thank you guys for tuning in for another episode.